Welcome back to another edition of Seeing Life from a Different Angle. This is podcast number 15. It's hard to believe that it's lasted as long as it has, but I'm I'm glad that it has, and I hope that it has been a benefit to you who are happy to, hopefully happily to listen. I thought today I would kind of go straight forward and kind of jump into a question, which is why is it that we as human beings no matter how much we recognize that the path we're on is not leading to a positive thing for our lives, why do we stay doing it anyway? Now, I know we've touched on it before in other ways, in other conversations, but I thought we would hit it head on today and kind of talk more in detail about it because I think it's one of those types of peculiarities about human beings. You know, you think about animals in nature, and I would suppose most part having studied a little bit of animal behavior way back in Virginia Tech I would suppose that most animals once they realize that this particular action is not working well for me that I'm going to find something that would work better you know it's survival of the fittest for one of a better way to put it but we as human beings don't tend to follow that principle of survival of the fittest we just keep doing the same things over and over again and finding ourselves with the same results, or more likely, we do something over and over again, realize that it's not working for us, panic, feel tension, and find something else that sadly is even more unhealthy for us, worse for us, we could say. And so why do we do this? Now you think about individuals that you've known in your life, well, they have acted in a particular way they they you know in relationships they seem to always talk too much or they seem to you know constantly be bragging about something and at some level or another watching from the outside you look at this friend of yours this relative of yours whatever the case might be and you think to yourself don't you see that what you're doing is not working here people just shy away from you they they push you back they treat you like they don't want to have a thing to, anything to do with you. And yet, you look at this individual and they may, after a while, change their pattern. But they don't change it dramatically into something that is healthier for them. They tend to change it towards something that just accentuates the unhealthiness of their choices. You know, over and over and over again. And the fascinating piece is, why do we do this? You know, I was talking to this person earlier today and, you know, we were talking about how it is that when we are first born, and this is something that I wrote in the blog that I put out yesterday, that how we are first born, we have this really powerful, I believe, an intense connection with God. And in that space, you know, in that first moments of life, you know, where there is nothing that we could say is anything beyond innocence you know we are held in our mother's arms and we are loved and it's this connection this connection that we have that you know we long for and will probably sadly for many never ever attain again and it is not just the connection between ourselves and our mothers but indeed a connection of true love a connection between the child and the mother and God and in that moment, 
we're not looking to find other ways to get what it is we're looking for because we have everything that we're looking for. We're in this wide open reality where anything is possible and everything is beautiful. It's like C.S. Lewis talks about when he was writing Narnia. You know, he talked about the idea that we as adults tend to lose this notion of magic. You know, we tend to act as if we are above magic. You know, that it isn't important anymore. But yet, what we fail to recognize, and I think he would agree with this, is that what we fail to recognize is that we lived in that world for a period of time. I would challenge almost any one of you to come forward and say, I didn't believe that my stuffed animals could talk to me, or I didn't believe that they would protect me. You know, I had a patient years ago who would surround herself with stuffed animals because that was the one thing in her life that she believed would be protective of her. You know, but what happens? Why do we not linger in this place longer? The answer is clear and it's sad at the same time, but it also leads us to where it is that we began this conversation. What ends up happening is that the world comes in our parents raise us, our siblings are there to engage with us, you know, friends of the family, aunts, uncles, grandparents. One way or another, what ends up happening is the people that matter to us or that we may matter to, hopefully, you know, these people will begin to frame us and they will spill on us, not because they want to, but because this is all they know, they will spill onto us how it is that they see the world and what was once a wide open reality becomes this myopic reality. You know, it goes back to the metaphor of this, the cave that we talked about from Socrates. You know, we, we live in this cave and we believe things are a particular way or our, the people that raise us live in this cave and they believe things are a particular way. And, you know, there's this intrepid adventurer who says there's got to be something more and that's the child. That's a child in all, inside all of us and the child that we were, and I, as I say, that exists still within us, the child underneath all those layers of adults clothing. But this intrepid adventurer says, I'm going to see if there's something more than what lies inside this cave. And once they realize that there is something more, once they see the light of day, they come back to share that with the people that are inside the cave. But what happens? Fear overtakes those people. This is what they know. This is all they've ever known. This is how they're going to treat the individuals in their lives. But there's two fallacies there. One is that this is not all they've ever known. And two, they don't have to treat people in their lives this way because this is not the way the real world is. This is the way that this myopic reality is. You know, this 10 degrees of a circle that we all tend to see and leaving out the other 350 degrees of the circle that only exist in this wide open reality. But once we are brought into that fenced in yard, you know, where we are surrounded by the seven foot fence, where anything that lies outside of the fence, anything that lies outside of our myopic reality is frightening to us, that little child is lost, pushed inside, becomes unconscious to us. And with it, I think, sadly, the notion of who God really is, how God really does love us and touch us, gets pushed away and fear takes over. Not the fear necessarily of, 
you know, spiders and snakes and all these other types of things, but truly the fear that if we don't do as we are told to do, if we don't live as we are told to live, who's going to love us? Who's going to value us? You know, my father and I have grown incredibly close over this past year, much to my great joy. And by joy, I mean not just a momentary satisfaction, but something that is long lasting and will stay with me, I believe, firmly for the remainder of my life. But we've become really, really close. And one of the things he said to me last week after listening to the podcast was, you know, I'm sorry that there were times when you felt lonely. But I think each of us, and he admitted this himself, each of us feels lonely. And I think it's not so much, interestingly enough, a loneliness because we're not surrounded by people. But I think it's a loneliness we feel because there's a piece of us that we know is missing. A connection that we once had that seems so odd and mysterious to us in its own way. And yet we can feel it psychologically, that missing piece. That piece that was once there is still there, but we just don't see it. And that's why at some level or another we could say we miss it and we long for it. And that longing, that lack of connection with that piece of ourselves, that is what produces that sense of loneliness that my father was talking about and that I brought up last week. And so when fear starts to overtake us, when we have pushed down God and pushed down the wide open reality that can exist and does exist in all of us, and I believe what can exist again. Once we have pushed that down, we're left with next to nothing. You know, what do we grasp onto? What do we hold onto? Ah, there's the, there's the rub. Because now we have to find something that's going to ease the tension that our psyche now experiences because of that missing link, because of that missing connection. You know, when you think about God, God is love. And the opposite of love is not hate, but fear. And fear produces in us this sense of emptiness that we have to fill very, very quickly, lest we be overcome. And so the ego now has to replace God. It has to find ways to ease that tension that God once took away just simply out of love. And so the ego learns this way or that. It learns some ways. You know, it's like the story I would tell my patients that, you know, a child is crying for their mother's affection. They desperately want to be held. They want that, what I refer to, erotic need to be gratified, just to be touched and held and caressed. And so they go into the kitchen. They ask for their mother to pick them up and gratify that need. And the mother shoes them away. And the child, you know, still longing for that peace, reaches up their hands again, says, please pick me up. And the mother shoes them away much more diligently the second time, and they become frightened by the look on their mother's face because what they thought they could get, what they knew or believed at one time they deserved was now being denied to them. And so they step back, and in doing so, they trip and they fall, hit their head on the cabinet and start to cry. And the mother comes over and she picks them up and hugs them and holds them. And the child's ego has learned a way, sad and pathological and distorted way of getting that need gratified. You know, 
And it's one of the things that the ego will say, ah, success, because if I get my needs gratified, I can replace that empty space. I could even use the words, I can replace God in my life because now I can find a way that will ease that tension for me. And it's such a sad thing to consider how we will turn toward that. Just like in the story, or the concept of having a friend or a relative who is, you know, overly bombastic, you know, who, when they drink too much, is somebody that just pushes everybody away. They're too sloppy. They're too much of a know-it-all or whatever the case might be. And that comes about because this individual over time has realized, okay, this didn't work. The metaphor of falling on the cabinet or falling and hurting oneself, that stopped working. So I'll try something else and I'll try something else and I'll try something else. And every time we try something else, Fear grows with it because now what if this one doesn't work because the last one didn't work and the one before it stopped working. So what happens if this one doesn't work? And they find themselves in a place where, ah, this one seems to be working pretty well. But what is it really giving us? What are we really finding here? A substitute at best. I think it's like I talked about in a, in a blog a couple weeks ago. You know, I had always believed and have for a very long period of time, so not always, but a very long period of time, that love, psychologically speaking, is the gratification of our ego's needs. And we have these six different ego needs that we've talked about before, but I'll review them quickly. We have the emotional need, which is the need to know that we can express our feelings to others and not have them challenged or changed or denied or rebuked. The second is the intellectual need where we can share our thoughts, our creativity, our interests with another person and not have them push them away, deny them, say that they're stupid or unimportant or insignificant. We have the need that I refer to as the erotic, just to be held and touched and caressed. We have the sexual need, which is desire for a sexual union with another human being. We have the need to genuinely be ourselves with others, which is the gateway to all needs. And then finally, we have the need to meet the needs of other people. And it has been my supposition for a long period of time that if we have these needs gratified, then we feel love. But I believe myself to be wrong. Looking at it now, I realize that that's not love. That is simply one word, relief. And relief is not love. There may be a sense of relief that we feel when we are loved, but it isn't love. It may be a part of it, but it isn't the same. And so even though I may be bombastic or I may be a sloppy drunk or I may be a know-it-all or I may choose any other unhealthy ways of dealing with life, whether it's success or shyness is oftentimes was the case for me, you know, to protect myself. One way or another, if I'm choosing these things, I'm just seeking relief. And the relief is from a sense of fear, a fear that I'm not worthy enough, I'm not valuable enough. And so there's a certain deep sadness, I think, when we look at it this way, that if all we're finding is relief, if all we're finding is a way to ease 
the tension that exists inside of us and to ease the fear and the trepidation and ultimately the despair that one might experience, if that's all we're finding through these things, then we are missing so much more in our lives. So what more is there? You know, in the blog that I finished yesterday, one of the things I had talked about was how, or the, the, that was the focus of the blog, was how it is that, as Saint, you know, Saint Francis once said, you know, we cannot put out the light of one candle, no matter how much darkness there might be. I know I just bastardized the quote, but one way or another, the idea is this, is that if there is a light, we cannot really extinguish that light, no matter how much darkness there may be. And that applies to our lives. So what is the light and what is the darkness? The darkness is the ways that our ego finds to get the gratification that it needs to bring the relief from fear and from tension and from anxiety and trepidation and despair. And that darkness just bombards us day in and day out. And the sad truth of it is we don't even notice how dark it is until we see the light. You know, it's like in The Magician's Nephew. It's a story, part of the Narnia series, written by C.S. Lewis. And the two characters in the book, they go into this world that is just red. It is just red everywhere. And, and it's like, you know, is this the way that the world is? You know, we see the sky, it's blue. But within ourselves psychologically, is it blue in us? Is it beautiful in us? Or is it just dark? Because we're so afraid, we're hunkered down, we're protecting ourselves from what? From what it is we fear. But what do we fear? We fear losing love, we fear being expelled. But the truth of it is we walked away from it, not because we wanted to, but because we were shoved in that direction. And not because the people that shoved us believed that they were doing wrong by us, no. They believed with their whole hearts, I think, that they were trying their hardest to give us what it is that they believed was best for us. And when we think about the real world, Yes, I guess it makes sense. It makes sense to say, you know, you've got to do this and you've got to do that and you've got to go to college in order to get the job, in order to make the money, in order to retire someday. All true. Or maybe not. But one way or another, it's kind of like that philosophy of this is what you must do and this is the way the world operates. It's that small fence that surrounds our lives. It's that small myopic reality that says to us this is the way the world works kid get used to it and when something challenges it don't listen to it it's like the metaphor of the cave you know when that intrepid adventurer came back to say you know there's a better world there's more out there there's what did it, what happened to her they killed her they killed her because she challenged their myopic reality they killed her because she said there's another 350 degrees to life. And in so many ways, it is a beautiful metaphor. And we may even say, you know, an understanding of what was to come. 
you know, when we think about our Christian faith, for those of you that are Christians, and for those of you that are not, you know, as C.S. Lewis called it, the Christian faith is the greatest myth because it is true. So when we think about this myth of Christianity and we look at this, the story of the cave is the story of Christianity in so many ways in the life of Christ. Here's someone who says to us, there's more than you know. I would say this, is that when Christ said there's more that you know, they chose to punish him. They chose to say no because they were afraid. They wanted to hold on with all their might to what it is they had. What do they have? They had money. They had power. They had ego gratification. And in truth, they really had something more important within themselves. They just couldn't see it. They couldn't understand it. They turned so far away from it. And that, going back to the blog, was the light, the candle of St. Francis. The thing that says, oh, there's something flickering that cannot be put out, no matter how hard I try with all this darkness that lies inside of me, all this darkness that makes me think that everything is okay and that I'm going to be okay, when in truth, if I drop it for one moment, I'm overcome with fear, you know? That light was the light that we had the moment we were born. The moments that our mothers said to us, you know, I love you. And the moments when we felt that true, powerful connection between our mother, ourselves, and God. That's the flickering light. That's the light Francis was talking about. That's the light Christ was talking about. I think when he said, don't put your light under a bushel basket, we do it all the time. We do it every day. And that's why when we linger in these spaces and we say to ourselves, you know, this is how the world works. I've got money. I've got fame. I've got power. You know, I've got people who have to listen to me. I've got control. None of it is worth anything. None. I may have a big business. I may have a lot of employees that work for me. I may have lots of money. I may have all these things, but without God, what are they worth? Because what I'm doing is denying that peace inside of myself that I have pushed out of consciousness. I'm denying it and saying that these other things are more powerful, more important. No, not to bring politics into the equation, but I think it's an interesting point to consider when Bill Clinton was going through the whole Monica Lewinsky escapade. You know, whatever side you were on, there was one or another story. One was character matters, and the other one was it doesn't matter because as long as I have money in my pockets, I'm fine. I would have to lean on the side that character does matter. And the reason I say that is because where does that sense of character come from without our sense of morality? You can't have character without thinking about what this might mean to the other person. You can't have character without thinking what this might mean to yourself. You can't have character without thinking that we are all part of one body. And as parts of one body, if I'm doing harm to someone else, they're doing harm to me or I'm doing harm to myself, you know, that's not character. No matter how much money I may have in my pockets, it doesn't bring anything. That's why it's so important for us to focus back 
on where that light is in our lives? Do I allow the darkness to continue to run my life? Those ego dramas of every day where I'm desperately searching for a better way? Or do I seek the light? I wish you well. <laughs>